0: Welcome to the conversation on the TYT Network. Um, I've got a warning for you guys. We might be about to have a very interesting conversation. Uh, We're bringing on retired Lieutenant Colonel Sergis Singari, and he is the CEO of Near East Center for Strategic Engagement. What that is is interesting, uh, let alone the conversation we're about to have. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel, welcome to the show.
1: It's good to be here, guys.
0: All right, so Before I get into what what your company does, which I find to be fascinating. um, I wanted to ask you about Afghanistan, Um, do you disagree with the withdrawal? (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, who would agree with how it was done? Uh, I know we were eventually gonna leave, everybody knew that. Rumsfeld knew that eventually we were gonna leave Afghanistan in uh, November of uh, 2001. But you have to set the process by which you're gonna be able to withdraw. And I think it was absolutely a debacle and uh, we still have Americans left behind, which me and some of my friends are working to try to get out of Afghanistan.
0: Okay, so, uh, it was not executed well, for sure. Uh, but you said even Rumsfeld thought we should leave at some point, of course. And yet here we are, 20 years later. Uh, so, was 20 years enough, or did you think we should have stayed longer?
1: Oh, you got to defeat the enemy. This enemy has been on the battlefield for 1,400 years, and you have to get into their psyche and defeat them. Unfortunately, number of times through many administrations, we took the eye off the ball. I think the previous POTUS set the stage when he squeezed Iran, but left Port of Chabahar open even after sanctions, which got the Indians to be able to develop that port for the Iranians, push our rail into Afghanistan. Forcing the Pakistan, uh, squeezing in financially. And when they turned towards Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia was being squeezed by the POTUS too, the previous one. Where they were not gonna be funding any support for Pakistan, support of their. Uh, intelligence services to be able to fund the Taliban. So that really kind of pushed the Taliban to have to come to negotiation tables on American terms. But unfortunately after that, when every, once everything was turned over, the decision to withdraw was just um, a disaster.
0: Yeah, no, we, we do not agree on that. Uh, so, But I, I'm curious, you said this enemy has been on the battlefield for 1400 years. Uh, does that mean we have to stay there for another 1400 years? And what do you mean this enemy?
1: Oh, you got to defeat him. Uh, What you might call. Look, uh, when we fought against the Germans, um, uh, you know, I was asked this question by my commander one time, and he said, you know, there were some good Germans uh, in Germany. I said, yes, sir, but they were, you know, supporting a fascist Nazi. We had to drop bombs, even burn major, uh, you know, German cities in order to be able to even sometimes kill those good Germans. Why? Because at the end of the day, they burned the Jews into ovens, into a crisp. You cannot allow that mentality to operate wherever man manifests itself, you gotta attack it. In this case, we should have just absolutely wiped out the Taliban, did not give them an opportunity to breathe. We had an 18 hour window under the current Biden administration. When they were initially attacking us and we were departing, which is part of their SOP, we could have probably wiped out their strategic leadership that was on the battlefield, exposing themselves, their operational and tactical folks. We could have blocked their you know, retreat and we could have probably done it in eighteen hours. Unfortunately that decision was made not to. I think the issue is that just like when we dropped two nuclear bombs on Japan to bring him to the table on our terms, we never ever approached this enemy in that fashion. We constantly give him that was the opportunities problem. to recover. Correct.
0: The problem was that we did not nuke them.
1: No, not nuked. We did not attack him to destroy their leadership. Taliban was wiped out almost under the Bush administration. No, no, no. Wait, 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 wait.
0: I want to be clear. Okay, so because you're a retired lieutenant colonel in the United States military, so you you didn't just say leadership, you use the model in Germany and Japan, where we incinerated their citizens, their civilians. For example, in Tokyo, we murdered 500,000 civilians even before the nuclear weapons were used, we firebombed them. Robert McNamara said, if we lose the war, we'll of course be tried as war criminals. So you seem to hold that up as exemplary. Is that what you thought we should have done in Afghanistan?
1: No, what I'm saying is you had an enemy who was not gonna quit, but you brought him to heel. You never brought this enemy to heel. You put him in Guantanamo, you gave him lawyers and then you released them under a sale. That, that, of, the Taliban, uh, back to the, the first you, of all, you well, I, I just wanna
0: be clear in Guantanamo, half the people were turned in by the Taliban and were enemies of the Taliban. They're mistakenly turned in. And so we kept a bunch of people who were perfectly innocent in Guantanamo as well, so it's, it's, no, I just want to uh, be clear about the facts. You're, looking,
1: you're looking at everything from, uh, from that perspective of Westerner, to you they're innocent, to them they're nothing more than individuals who work with the Taliban. Uh,
0: look, uh, this. But a lot of them didn't, enemy, a lot of them worked against the Taliban, a lot of them were, were Uyghur no, like Turks from China, a, it, they had nothing to do with case, the Taliban.
1: If that's the case, the Iranians gave us, uh, gave us targeting. To hit Taliban targets, okay? So look, it's mock snakes, however you wanna approach it. Does that mean that we should have kept our deal with the Iranians because they gave us targeting for the, for the Taliban themselves? Yes. The Turks right now are supporting the Taliban. They're part of NATO support structures. The Turks have an interest in what is happening currently in Afghanistan. Look, you're getting to a point where these individuals kill each other on a daily basis. You have the Shia, who kills a Sunni and says, you're an infidel, I'm gonna kill you, the same thing, vice versa. Now, if you take anybody else to include an American or Christians or other minorities, Hindus, and you put them between this particular enemy, you're gonna lose. The only way you could bring this enemy to heal, he has to understand that he is gonna get wiped out if he takes any steps outside of what the norms of extended societies are. And in this case, if you give him a political process for them to recover themselves, they will always manifest themselves. Look, this enemy has attacked you in the United States and Europe has attacked,
0: they were you even manifesting saying, look, I in gotta you. Hold on, hold on. So there's a bunch of problems here. You keep saying bring, the Taliban to heal, but you started this conversation with burning their civilians alive. I don't see how that would bring the Taliban I to didn't, heal. Yeah,
2: uh, I, I
1: didn't say burn their civilians alive. Well,
0: that's the uh, analogy you use say, with the nuclear well, weapons like, and, the, and the German example and the firebombing of the cities that burned their civilians alive. So why did you bring up that example then?
1: Because on a technical basis, that's what we had and that's what we did. We squeezed that individual to heal. Now you're talking about modern weapon technologies. You could reach out and touch this person any place you want. You don't need to have any type of a governmental ambassador citizen. So Lieutenant Colonel, uh, what the uh, hell
0: were we doing in Afghanistan all this time? You guys droned the living crap out of Afghanistan. You hit him and hit him and bombed him and bombed him and uh, did the occupation for 20 straight years. Then don't you have to admit that you were totally and grossly incompetent? That you guys had 20 years and couldn't do a goddamn thing. Both the military and private contractors like yourself. Well, I think where you're getting to
1: is the issue we've had because we never approach this enemy from an ideological standpoint. We only approach him on how we can attack him, correct? And I think that's probably what you're getting the sense of. But no, if you think about it from the strategic perspective, I used to have uh, units would come through my training and I would say, okay, what are you gonna do now? Here's an enemy in Afghanistan manifesting themselves in this particular position. So the commander would say, well, I'm gonna deploy my force structures here. I'm gonna have my multi structure here. I'm gonna bring my SF assets here. I'm gonna bomb them here. I'm gonna destroy them here. I'm gonna block them here. But when you think about that, I would say, okay, what did you accomplish at the end? He said, well, I destroyed the enemy. I said, yeah, but what did you accomplish? Why did you fight this war? And a lot of them couldn't answer, well, I was told to fight because he's an enemy. No, you have to fight him on an ideological perspective. We never fought this individual- what on an Ideological perspective, because we never defined who this person is. You have to have an end game to all wars. Why are you fighting an enemy in the Middle East? Why are you fighting him? Are you fighting because you have no interest? We have an interest. One individual burns themselves. And in uh, Tunis and the entire Middle East goes up in flames. And then it reaches out and touches you in uh, California. It touches you other places of homeland US. So So you have to understand that you have to have an ideological reason to fight this enemy. What is that? That's a decision that Americans haven't
0: made yet. So you you started with firebombing their citizens and now you're talking about an ideological battle. And now I'm a little worried about asking what I'm going to ask. Okay, so you, you mentioned earlier that I'm looking at it from an American perspective. And then you said these individuals have been killing each other for all this time, but they're different individuals. There's Sunni, there's Shia, there's Persian, there's Arab, there's Turkic, on and on. So then now you talk about an ideological battle. So, this is, so now I'm afraid to ask what do you mean by an ideological battle and who is them? The ideological
1: battle that says that regardless if you do not believe in my dictates of my religious philosophy, you have to die. Like I said, Shia do it to the Sunnis, Sunni to the Shia, Al Qaeda does it to ISIS, ISIS does it to Taliban regardless. But they're all doing it for one reason, establishment of a caliphate. The Middle East, since Muhammad to Ottoman Empire had a caliphate in charge of it. They were very brutal to their citizens and they killed their citizens who did not listen to their dictates. It was a religious and secular so-called combination of leader that was leading the entire caliphate. Once this divided during the British and French signing of the Sykes-Picot contract, which was a contract. And these so-called states were manufactured in the Middle East. These so called leaders that were supposed to be secular separate from their Islamic backgrounds ended up not being able to control it. Why? Because when it came to the people, they could not really justify their positions. How do you justify your position if you're a king or a, somebody who is in a prince position? You justify it by saying I am placed in here because of godly support. Well, when you had a separation of these particular divides of the religion, and they also the secular, the only way, whatever it was, the Shah of Iran, Saddam Hussein or anybody else that was out there that was a dictator. When they realize that they're losing their base, what did they turn to? They turned to Islam, whether it be Saddam Hussein placing Allahu Akbar on his flag or the Shah in an interview demeaning his own wife because he had to placate to the Islamic dictates where the men are more superior than a woman in the interview that was done even on ABC in the US. This is a problem you run into the Persian businessmen used to get up in the morning, eat in their houses, fly out to France, spend money as they wanted to shop and then fly back after eating a late dinner and sleep in their own beds. These same individuals turned around because of an ideology and said, you know what? We are going to support an Islamic Republic that is now established in the region that has been base for terror for a number yeah. of years. Okay, so the things- this is a problem. We never understood that this thing though is not going to change unless okay. you really L- approach from the Middle Eastern L- perspective. Yeah. So it's The combination of both.
0: Lieutenant Colonel Singar, you're saying very dangerous things. You're lumping all Muslims together and and you seem to be generalizing that Muslims are the problem. And, and then you say you're only specific uh, political point that you made that other than a general, honestly bigoted attack against all Muslims all across the world was, hey, they're combining church and state. Okay, I'm worried about, I'm secular, I'm worried about combining church and state. Uh, but clearly, uh, that's what they're doing in Texas uh, by taking away abortion rights. So should we firebomb the citizens of Texas according to your ideology?
1: Now listen. You could read whatever you want uh, into it. I, I think if you go to the tape, I pretty much laid it out. This ideology works in hand in hand. I have my own mother here, who's a Christian, who went ahead and opened up a, a just a safety deposit box, box in a local bank years ago with my dad. Uh, now my dad passed away two years ago, as of this September 14th, when we went when she went to close it out. The bank leadership, who's not believe, you know, following Sharia law, said you can't close it out. She said, "I don't believe in your religious beliefs. I am a Christian woman." so it doesn't matter. It has to be a man to be able to close it out. Okay, I get it. You the ideology Muslims. that I he it. pushes. No, look, I lived box about I've actually uh, fought and bled for those individuals on the battlefield. So I don't want to hear from you if you haven't been on the battlefield of Iraq and Afghanistan fighting to save these individuals. Save okay, them, so I know you got
0: to save their village not- by burning it down. Here, I, I, I promise this, so I got to ask you about your company. You you guys said you're a military advisory group for the Assyrian army in Iraq. I, this is a genuine question, I, I, and it's not ideological, I'm curious. How does a, a private contractor contract with a non-government entity and then get into the middle of a battle and help them militarily. Is is, is that legal in, in American law, international law? And can anyone do it? Can a, a number of people just go to one side or another and start teaching them how to kill better?
1: No, you can't do that. Look, uh, we support those certain Christians because they're getting butchered in bushels between uh, 2014 and 2017. Uh, So when we got on the battlefield, there are multiple different companies out there that were operating. Uh, We did it in a way of an advisory to them. Uh, Yes, we did operations at tier one, tier two level. Uh, and they had no support. We couldn't even get uh, a request for our bombing runs against uh, targets in Syria because uh, the Obama administration at that time did not want to even attack uh, oil convoys ever coming through because it might be an environmental hazard. Uh, so uh, the way we did it was we raised money, we supported the uh, families of those uh, soldiers who decided to go and fight uh, on the battlefield and uh, we had number of victories to where even the ISIS at that time declared the army that we had as a nuisance that had to be fought against when they declared war in their magazine against France. So look, I have fought on the battlefields, I know this enemy, I understand how he operates. He operates in a non-secular, I should say a non-conventional way. And you have to fight him on his battlefield the way he does. Yeah, you've been doing that for 20
0: years, how's that working out for you? Um, okay. Well,
1: look, uh, look, it hasn't worked out well, right? Because we, Yeah, because uh, you keep killing
0: uh, your civilians and then they hate you more. Then they hate me more and they hate all of us more. And it creates endless wars, which honestly is profitable for you. But it's disastrous for the rest of us.
1: Well, no, we haven't made any money. I haven't earned money for it. It's hard to turn on to a refugee and say, give me money so I can save you. We did it out of our own pocket. I actually sold rugs in my own car to pay for some of the efforts we did because we want to make sure no money came to them. Look, when you're on the battlefield, you're the certain Christians every 1.5 million, the first time United States went to war against Iraq, we knew that the Christians would be butchered because if you can't no, reach that's out not true. an American here. No, that's not true. When I we knew- when,
0: when when I was saying we shouldn't go to Iraq war, one of the main points I was making is, I was worried the Christians were going to get butchered. And the idiots like Bush and Cheney and Rumsfeld said, no, they'll be better off. How'd that work out?
1: Well, When I say we, I should uh, say more about my friend who actually went and put himself on a cross for three days in front of the UN. Here's an Uber driver and he said, Christianity in the Middle East ends today. And you know what? He was much smarter than most of the PhDs and the presidents. I you know why really he understood that? Because he knew that this enemy was gonna go ahead and kill those Christians. We went from 1.5 million to 100,000. Now, if they're so called individuals who are not out there to kill, Others for their ethnicity and for their religious beliefs, then that should not
0: have happened, right? All right, they should have been protected. Yeah, Lieutenant Colonel. Last question. So, are American mercenaries allowed to go and work for foreign governments or foreign entities, which are paramilitary groups within a civil war like Syria? Again, I'm just asking because I don't know, and it's a simple. No, look. Question. Uh, no, by,
1: by law, by regulation, none of this should happen. But the problem is, it's been so bad across the board and uh, the rules are what they are. Today you have Americans on the ground helping to get Americans out of Afghanistan. The State Department's not doing it, uh, Department of Defense is not the lead for it. Uh, so it shouldn't happen, but it does happen. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, we've done it to ourselves because of the bureaucratic way we operate. Look, when I had the uh, command of the certain forces, we went and sat in front of the State Department and said, look at the operations we did because we knew no support was gonna come to them because of were basically a Christians. What ends up happening, State Department said, why don't you guys go and join the Hashishabi? Shabby Uh, at that time so we can funnel money directly through what state is supposed to do to the Iraqi government to you guys. We rejected that, said that makes no sense. Other Christians did, but at the same time, two years later, the same State Department turned around and designated Hashishabi as a terror group. And when they started bombing the targets and joining them in Iraq, some Christians were wounded in those strikes. Why? Because they follow what the State Department told them to do in accordance with how we distributed functional budget $150 and how we used multi sales. Our systems are not designed to understand how to operate with these people. Unfortunately, oh, yeah. we rely on them so much that we don't really care what happens to the guy on the ground.
0: You seem to show a lot of concern for Christian civilians that were killed when they shouldn't be, and I share that concern. That You did not seem to share a similar concern about Muslim civilians being killed earlier in the interview. All right, retired Lieutenant Colonel- Sergeant No, look, uh,
1: that's your opinion. I never stated that if
0: I was- Yes, you I'm did. You said we should have brought them to heel by firebombing them, just like we did in Germany and Japan. You said that.
1: No, I said we did that in Germany. We did that in Japan and brought those two countries to the table. I said we never use our power in the Middle East to do so. You could go you back it again. and listen to it. So, but you're reading into the comment,
0: you're like what else would I be reading it into it? A, that's what we did. You said we firebombed them and that brought them to heel and we that's we what we should have done. And I
1: also said that the president put sanctions on Iran but kept a port open so India can work with Iran to put pressure on Taliban to bring him to the table. It is not as black and white. Maybe it's easier for, for this conversation for it to be. But I think I was pretty direct as far as showing the linkage as far as how you it from the strategic perspective and how you have to have an information operation campaign ahead of your operation yeah. before you go in. War is brutal and you better be willing to kill people at times.
0: That's why we shouldn't go into it willy nilly like you want us to for 1400 years, but we're very clear on that. You don't
1: need to go into it, we'll come find you.
0: Yeah, you want to go find it for profit. That's and all of your contractor buddies do, and the Defense Department does, and you all get rich off of it. You you claim you're not making money. I I don't believe you. Every defense contractor wants to make money, wants war, doesn't care about the civilians, wants to kill, 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 create more and endless wars. Why? Because endless wars create more wars. Because then they hate us because we killed their civilians, and then they come and attack us, and then we go round and round and round. And by the way, in all of this, what's the one Country that got treated like they were the top of the world, even though they're the ones who actually attacked us, Saudi Arabia. Why? Because of goddamn oil and money and the corrupt people that started all these wars that you love so much.
1: Oh, you could say you, but I mean, go look at my tax occurrence. And and so I haven't made money off of any of these wars. Maybe you believe that because you make money based on your show. I don't make money based on any.
0: <laughs> I know else. poor defense contractors I, I have never made any money. Oh, do you also think Lockheed Martin doesn't make money and Raytheon doesn't make money and Halliburton and look, all these they, companies? They all do. What, I'm they make billions off of wars, don't one, they? One thing, I t-
1: you're right. And I'll tell you one thing. the When I went uh, at their religious broadcasters gathering because we were briefing about what's happening about certain Christians, there were two. Meetings at that time, one was a briefing as to what is happening on the ground. Another one was a meeting that was talking about how you could raise money for your churches, maybe for your programs I don't know in this case if you ever been there. Uh, Most people were in the uh, program as to how to make money. Look, five years ago this November, I stood on stage uh, at a synagogue in uh, in Canada and I said, look, why is it that even the east uh, that the western churches are not doing anything about the genocide of we also represented the Yazidis, okay, in this process. And basically, because they don't understand this evil, they don't understand the nature of the evil because they never faced it. When this evil kills you and manifests in front of you, that's the only time you may get a taste of it. I've seen how it operates. No, now, with that no, said,
0: no. I have. You keep calling it evil, Lieutenant operates. Colonel. And so if you're talking about fundamentalists of any religion, Muslims, Christians, Jews, you name it, by the way, Buddhists, Hindus, then I'm dead set against it. And I'm secular and I want to fight an ideological, rhetorical, political battle of ideas, okay? I'm in favor of that. I'm not in favor of killing their civilians. I'm not in favor of lumping them all together. I'm not in favor of invading their countries based on their religion. This, the rest of it is total insanity. There's a giant you difference between be. fundamentalist Islam. Yeah. And by the way, I left Islam, so I've had fundamentalist Muslims threaten to kill me. So I know a thing or two about that. But yeah, I do not equate that with 1.6 billion Muslims in the world, as you seem to do over and over and over again. Whenever you talk about yeah. them and how they've been in there for 1,400 years, and they are all the same, Shia, Sunni, etc. You seem to be equating evil with Muslims, and it is very dangerous. And that's actually what gets us killed.
1: Yeah, I ran for office here in 2020, got a 107,818 votes and I got support based on what I said, even from Islamic organizations here. So they understand what they're dealing with, maybe you don't. But what I will tell you is, It's a personal opinion, right? At the end of the day is how our policy executes. Do you believe that wars are going to end because you don't get involved in the regions that are destabilized? If you believe that, God bless you. How many wars has Indonesia been involved
0: in in the Middle East? Say again? How many wars has Indonesia been involved in in the Middle East? None. You know why? Because they didn't no, start Indonesia,
1: any. Yes. And how many times Indonesia, did they get
0: attacked? Yeah. None. You know why? Because they didn't start yeah, these stupid wars in the Middle East. So you all could get rich and so the oil companies can get rich because of our goddamn corrupt politicians. If you don't, if you don't get involved in these wars, they don't start, they don't hate you forever and they don't bomb you and kill your families. But instead, you you guys gotta, no, 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 firebomb them, firebomb them, they're evil. No, Lieutenant Colonel, if I'm I'm being honest with you, if I'm being honest with you, there is is one person that sounds evil. There is one person that sounds evil—the one saying kill their citizens because they're all the same and they're evil. That's the person that actually sounds evil. And I got news yeah, for you. Yeah, nobody said kill
1: citizens, but when somebody has a gun in their hand and they're part of a—they
0: didn't have a gun in their, in their hand until we went over there human. and started fighting them nonstop. The Saudis had the gun, but you didn't go to the Saudis. You went to Afghanistan yeah. and you went to Iraq—that had nothing to do with it. Why? Ah, they're all Muslims anyway, right? No, listen- Why the hell
1: did we go to Iraq? Iraq didn't attack us on 9-11. Of dollars in Indonesia, you you probably know that by now as far as how much money they invest. That money that moves through Indonesia and moves outside is used sometimes and even manifests through South Sudan. Why, do we Sudan Why did we go to Iraq? Why did we go to Iraq? Why did we go to
0: Iraq? Iraq did not, did not do
1: 9-11. Why did we go Look, to Iraq? Listen. I think you're right because the the idea was from what I Bush taught that if you go there, you might be able to squeeze the root of the strongest Sunni state. And maybe you'll be able to go ahead and make a change. Uh, Unfortunately, you realize that Muslim. that was
0: not possible. You just so said look, it was because they were Sunni think, Muslim and had nothing look, to do with Al-Qaeda at all. No, Al Qaeda was there. Al Qaeda was there. No, the they weren't. The no, air. they weren't. That's Al-Qaeda. just flat out false. Al
1: Qaeda is. Like, Al Qaeda you know,
0: hated I Saddam. Saddam hated Al Qaeda. Saddam killed Al Qaeda all the time, along with a lot of other innocent people. But he hated Al Qaeda.
1: He killed who he had to for his own benefit, like everybody Why else. Why did not we kill so and attack me- the
0: country that hated Al Qaeda? Because they're Muslim, you said all, it, because they're Sunni all Muslim. These
1: movements, the, all these movements then, that's what you're telling me, that all these movements are based on dollars. They're German like that. They're German out of Saudi and Indonesia. If that money is coming from them directly to support them- and it's well, Okay, coming if it's, then what the do you think UAE they're motivated by? You think they're motivated by, Islam,
0: right? you think they're motivated by Islam, right? You think they're motivated by Islam. You've been saying it the whole interview, right? No, you have to have a motivation. What is your motivation then? What is no, no, no
1: I'm interviewing you. You think it's Islam, it, right? No, it's an establishment of a caliphate. What is a caliphate, caliphate. based on? I just Saddam told you. Didn't wanna, Saddam just wanted to establish you, his own
0: dictatorship and however broad an area he could. He used religion as an excuse. It had nothing to do with a caliphate. You're using Islam as a way to attack all Muslim cultures. And all Muslim countries. No,
1: it's if that was the case, then Muslims would have had the same idea that you have. There's a lot of Muslims out there who don't agree with you from Iraq to Kurds that have fought against this type of a enemy. And they realize they cannot control it. The problem has been when you have anyone that you could dictate and say, the guy next to you, whether it be Shia, Sunni, whether it be Christian, is a person who doesn't Belong to your ideology, you gotta go kill them. You can never, that's you what can you're never saying really throughout the interview. You have to you're, saying,
0: you're saying we have to fight an ideological battle backed up by uh, massive bombs and burnings and killings. So, what you're saying is, not if they, they don't agree not. with me, no, no, but that's a literal well, thing. That that's our You're part saying, it. You saying if they don't agree it. with my ideology, let's go kill them. How are you any different?
1: Oh, no, that wasn't said. You could try to spin it that way, but that wasn't said. You like, said it was an ideological
0: battle. And that the you want to conduct that militarily.
1: Right now, the discussion we're having right now, and most people will see as a ideological battle if you want to call it, is fought right here between this headspace right here, those six inches. This is where it's fought. So then let's do it you ideologically, it let's not do it militarily. So let me ask you, okay, then let me ask you a question. I'll put you on uh, on this particular question, you could wise us up because I don't know any better. How do you fight that ideology here? To ensure that doesn't come out and kill innocent people. I do it is every day. It's killing him in, in, in uh, Afghanistan. It's killing him in Iraq. It's killing him in Syria. Uh, it's killing him in Yemen. It's killing him in Sudan and South Sudan. It's killing him in Kenya. It's no, no, killing, him, killing him in Somalia.
0: Okay, How all right. It? We're, we're do done. But it. I'll answer your question, and then we're done. Yeah, um So I do it every day. We've reached. 20 20 billion views, okay? And what we do is we explain to people why fundamentalist religion is wrong, no matter what that religion is. And how you cannot combine church and state. We explain and we fight for secular values, but we don't do it by killing people. We don't do it through military occupation that oppresses them, and that makes them want to fight you more not less. You don't convince them by killing their brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and babies. You do it by actually trying to convince them, but you don't want to do that because when you have a hammer, everything looks like nails. So you see Muslims and you think let's invade and that's mental and it has led us to be a lot less safe. It is brutal, it's bigoted and but the most important thing is it doesn't work 20 years complete and utter failure doing it your way. Yeah, look,
1: get them to understand not to kill each other for the past- Here we go again with Shia and Sunnis. Now, with that said though, when we went into Iraq, we made the Iraqi constitution an Islamic constitution. If you agree with what you're saying, then you should be first one telling all your viewers, contact your congressman and tell them to put pressure on Iraq to change their constitution from an Islamic constitution to a secular constitution. Same thing with Iran. Okay, so I'll tell get them right that. On. And then see how much you're going to get anything out of it. We establish an Islamic constitution with Islamic. So what do you want to do, go go back and invade
0: Iraq again? Because they have an Islamic
1: constitution? No, you have now individuals on the ground who don't believe in that ideology. You got Assyrians, you got Yazidis, they could have their own region. Of course, I don't want
0: Iraq to have an Islamic constitution. It doesn't mean the the answer is bombing them, we gotta go, all right. And
1: here's what I would ask you, please go out and tell all your congressmen to, I mean, all your personnel to call that congressman and tell them that the Assyrian Christians, just like everybody else, has an ethnicity. If you don't want to consider a religion, desert their region. We want it now, and I want to make yes, sure that you I, I yourself
0: write a letter. Absolutely. Hey, I look, appreciate. we reached agreement at the end of this contentious, otherwise contentious interview. I believe Listen, that Iraq. I believe that Iraq. Hold on. I believe that Iraq should separate church and state, and I think Texas should too. So I don't think any Christian country should do it. I don't think any Christian state should do it. I don't think any Jewish state should do it. I don't think any Muslim state should do it. I'm sure that you agree.
1: I agree with that and you know look thank you for having me on your show and thank you for letting me you know come back you know and talk a little bit over you on some of the discussions. You wouldn't you didn't yeah. have to let me do that but I appreciate the fact that we had an opportunity to talk. I'm not saying I got all the answers. But every now and then, as I told people, put the scope in my chest, ask me the tough questions because that's the only way we can improve our leadership. So thank you for the time. And again, please help us to get a region for those certain Christians as an ethnicity in Northern Iraq. Much appreciated.
0: All right, thank you. Well, in the conversation, great conversation for you guys about how do we end the Racist policing and criminal justice system that we have in this country. We're gonna bring on Kay Whitlock and Professor Nancy Heitzig. They wrote a book together called Carceral Con, the Deceptive Terrain of Criminal Justice Reform. Welcome. Thank you.
3: Thank you, it's nice to be here.
0: Yes. Great to have you. So you talk about a predatory and racist capitalism that provides uh, that requires a disadvantaged and exploited underclass. Uh, now, I'm going to ask. Start with a really broad question. Either one of you can take it. How, do, if that's true, um, and certainly the consequences of it are are clear, right? How do we change it? It seems like a. Do we have to change capitalism first in order to fix policing and criminal justice? No, I think we
3: work to start to, to work on, on, on simultaneously on multiple fronts. And different groups and organizations, different communities, different movements can work on, on different parts of it. One of the first things that needs to happen is that people need to know that criminal justice reform is not doing what they think it will do. They hope it will reduce mass incarceration. They Mm -hmm. hope it will remedy police violence. They hope it will um, undercut uh, structural racism and structural poverty. It does none of those things. In fact, it expands uh, structural violence and It expands criminal justice systems of policing, surveillance, and carceral control. So the first thing we begin to do is educate. And our book is particularly written to help people look beyond the massive public relations machine that's behind the bipartisan reform consensus in order to understand this. And in order to understand why you can't evaluate the real impacts of reforms without taking the larger social economic and environmental context into account and that's racial
2: capitalism mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to add to you know that you know the history of the United States rooted in settler colonialism and slavery, um, you know is the foundation of all of this, and and certainly um, criminal legal system, um, you know, has played a major role in maintaining and reinforcing structural inequality at at every level. Um, you know, the prison itself um, was presented as a reform, and we've got a long history of seeing how you know, as Kay suggested. Um, that reforms rarely dent the system. They end up expanding it, re entrenching it, you know, reinforcing, recreating the violence. So I
0: think on some of the issues, there's not much controversy, at least with our audience. Our reform movements, we acknowledge, as you all write about, are generally meant to actually do the opposite. They increase the budgets of the police. And that's the one that's currently being contemplated by Congress and their nonsense bipartisan approach. The Republicans are never going to agree to real criminal justice reform. If they agree to it, almost by definition, it means it's going to actually help the cops. And do what they're already doing, which we're not in favor of, which has led to the problems that we're, we're having now. Joe Biden says the same thing. He says we should increase funding to the police, not the opposite. So we, we know all of those problems. I'm interested because you guys have intriguing solutions for what should we do instead. And there, I don't know that I agree, but I'm fascinated by it. So if let me throw it out again to both of you. If we don't have prisons, what would we do instead?
3: The first thing we start to do is to mount strong cross-movement, cross-constituency, cross-movement campaigns to change the fiscal and social and political priorities of this country. That's actually a possibility. Nothing's an easy task, but it's actually a possibility if we start to think about and one of the things our book does is really give a very strong education in terms of how every problem created by racial capitalism becomes a site for policing and a site for expansion of the system. As more and more people understand that, they become much more open and they're seeing lots of evidence in lots of areas. Not only reform of the criminal legal system, how how uh cosmetic reforms really are not providing uh any justice pretty much to to anyone so we start by understanding that abolition is a call to develop new more trustworthy and structurally just social political economic and ecological relationships and we work at the local level we work at county and state levels uh to help organize and build power and develop power in this case from the bottom up from the grassroots up.
0: Do you- Part
2: of what I-
0: Go, go, ahead. go ahead. Go ahead. Do you envision a, a, a situation where even in a local community, we could have we could get to a place if we've done all of this right, where we wouldn't have prisons or police? And if that's the case, what would we have instead?
2: We would have well. Well, I mean, there's not one of the things abolitionists would say is, you know, that there's not one easy cookie cutter answer, right? That we, you know, make the road by walking. That a new vision of public safety and community will be our joint creation, right? One of the things that I wanted to add um, to Kay's comment is part of what we need to do is, and part of what I think the book hopes to do, is disentangle our notions of public safety from the idea of policing and criminal legal systems. You know, I'm in Minneapolis right now where there's a ballot measure we're gonna finally be able to vote on after a lot of controversy about. Um, creating a department of public safety versus just a police department. And then imagining how we can use some of our resources, some of our collective resources to find alternatives to police responses to you know, everything. Um, criminalization of poverty, criminalization of protest, criminalization of a variety of mental health issues. Um so there's not an easy answer. Um, people have collectively and creatively been been trying to you know work imaginatively towards envisioning alternatives that are rooted in community.
0: R- Real quick, Professor Heitzig. Uh, are you in favor of that ballot measure? it's It's you know probably not as structural uh, a reform or change as as you would want, but is it a good step forward?
2: I, I think it absolutely is. I think it absolutely is. It begins to um, create some alternatives to responding to a variety of social problems you know in in the city um, in ways that are not criminalizing. So yes, okay. yes, for Minneapolis. Okay. And the key
3: with with all of these issues is to articulate our longer, deeper goal and to invite more and more people into the process of creating different community um, conditions, different forms of community accountabilities. There is never going to be just a one one size fits all solution, but there's an enormous amount of creativity uh, going along there. And we Build as we go, but it's a, it's a process of having to dismantle on one hand, meaning to reduce the amount of contact people have with police. Through defunding police, through shifting priorities on one hand. And then lifting up, as Nancy said, these new visions of community safety that are really built in visions of community and ecological well-being.
0: Mm-hmm. so Kate, let me stay with you for a second. Uh, so you, you often talk in the book about capitalism and, and how that's the root of some of these problems. So I understand some of the specifics. So for example, um, criminal justice, so called criminal justice in the South started with slave patrols. So and it has morphed into putting African Americans in bondage in other ways. And so that that's clear. Um, but does it have to be that way? Do you think capitalism, by definition has to be racist? Obviously, every country yeah. is different and it has had different histories, so I'm curious why if and if so, why? why do you think it has to be racist?
3: Well, as the great carceral geographer Ruth Wilson Gilmore says, capitalism requires inequality, and racism enshrines it. The almost complete meshing of, of race and class in this country. And the way that also intersects then with gender and ableism and, and so forth uh, is how the system operates. I don't see, we don't see in the book a gentler, kinder form of racial capitalism. We have to remember too that police forces developed not only out of slave patrols, but also in the Northeast, for example, out of attempts to control labor and to control organizing for for labor rights. So there are a number of, and, and then there's the whole experience of settler colonialism, and the policing of indigenous um, communities. So there are multiple strands and threads and bringing these realities and these voices in different communities into the process of working to look toward a different kind of society and a different kind of system of justice that doesn't start with processes of criminalization of vulnerable and marginalized communities. That's a big start and more and more people are really ready to start becoming a part of that
0: effort. Right. There's, there's a lot of nuance there in terms of what's called capitalism, the different histories of the different countries, etc. But unfortunately, we're out of time. But it's a really interesting book, Kay Whitlock, Nancy Heitzig, the book Carceral Khan, The Deceptive Terrain of Criminal Justice Reform. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it.
3: Thank you.